Amen, amen. You may be seated this morning. We're going to continue our verse-by-verse study in John's Gospel, so if you'll turn there to chapter 3, the fourth Gospel in the New Testament, the fourth book of the New Testament, John's Gospel, chapter 3. We're going to cover verses 1 through 15 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Luke will hand you a Bible so you can follow along with us in our text, John chapter 3. Verses 1 through 15 is a familiar portion of scripture to a lot of us, but we want to just once again go over it and be touched by God's word here this morning. So John chapter 3, if you'll turn there. While you're turning there, just a real quick announcement um, that we uh, on Father's Day uh, had ended the baby bottle campaign for the pregnancy center, but there's still some baby bottles that are out there. And uh, so if you have one, if you can bring it back so we can get it back to the pregnancy center, um, those bottles, they, you know, have to spend money in purchasing those bottles. So if you got one, you know, in the back seat of the car or on the floor or something, you might want to check. We've got 30-some that are still out. So if you can check that um, and bring it back, and then we'll make sure that they get it back. So we kind of want to wrap everything up concerning the baby bottle campaign. So you should be there, John chapter 3, this morning. And we're going to read the text uh, verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to pray. So in chapter 3 of John, we read, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. And so, Father, this is a familiar uh, portion of Scripture to a lot of us. But as we cover it, I pray that it wouldn't lose its impact and its meaning to us. This very important one-on-one meeting that Jesus had with this religious man, telling him about the most important decision that anyone could ever make, any man or woman, and that is concerning Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be touched and stirred, that it would also enable us to be able to give truth to others. Um, So, Lord, we come, our ears are open to you, our hearts are soft before you. I pray that we would not only look at the implication, but, Lord, that we would make application as well for us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. It is said by those who study such things that, on average, a person makes about 3,000 decisions every single day. Now, most of those decisions that we make are, seem to be optional or insignificant. Matter of fact, we forget about 99% of the decisions that we make. Uh, for example, the 3,000 uh, decisions that you made yesterday, give or take a, uh, you know, a few, some made more, some made less. But in the decisions that you were making yesterday, do you remember a lot of them? You, you probably don't. And a lot of those decisions may be, I turn left at this corner, uh, I, what shirt you wore, whatever it might be, those kinds of decisions that we make every single day of our lives. 
Now we do know that in life that there are decisions that we do remember that we make because they're important decisions. And we do have those decisions that are life-changing, uh, um, are very significant, very important in our lives. For example, uh, a decision on who it is that you're going to marry, uh, where it is that you're going to live, what career that you're going to choose, uh, uh, perhaps for uh, some of you, what college that you're going to go to, uh, where you're going to go on vacation. There are very significant decisions that we make all the time as we journey through life. But as we look at our text here this morning, we're going to see that there is one decision that is spoken of here in John chapter 3 that has eternal implications. That is, where it is that you're going to spend eternity. The Bible over and over again tells us that on this side of eternity, that life is short. James says it's but a vapor. And when you compare our lives here on this earth, in this world, it is very, very short in comparison to eternity. Even if you live to be elderly in your 90s or over 100 years old, that is a very short time in comparison to forever. And so it is but a vapor that is there and then it's gone. And then we know that the psalmist writes that our lives are like the grass that is green, but then it withers away or the flower that blooms and then it fades away. And that's the truth of the scriptures. All of us are going to our lives come to an end on this side of eternity and then we're going to move into eternity. So as we look at our text here, the decision that is spoken of here that every man and every woman has to make is an essential, non-negotiable, matter of fact, it's a must, is what Jesus is going to say, as he's going to say, as we read in our text, that you must be born again. So as we look at our text here, we're going to see that this is important, not only for our own lives, but be able to give that truth to others as well. So as we read that here is Nicodemus, he's a man of the Pharisees, in verse 1, that is a ruler of the Jews that comes to Jesus by night. And we know that this is during the time of the Passover. It's, it's Passover in Jerusalem, with Passover being one of the three major feasts that the Jews would celebrate. And Jesus, as we saw in the previous chapter last week, had made his way up to the city of Jerusalem. And in the previous chapter, we read that Jesus went into the temple proper and overturned the money changers' tables. Um, it's the first cleansing of the temple that he did in his first year of ministry. And just as we discussed last week, that there's actually two cleansings of the temple. John records the first one, again, in his first uh, year of his ministry. There's no triumphal entry here, as we see in the other cleansing that the Synoptic Gospels record that takes place at the end of his life, right before he goes to the cross. So he is here. He is one that uh, would drive out uh, of the temple those who were really merchandising the people. They were taking advantage of the people. It was all uh, overseen by the religious leaders. And, and Jesus was greed when he saw what was going on. They were selling the oxen and the sheep and the doves at very high prices, exuberant prices. And Jesus saying, take these things away and don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. And the religious leaders asked Jesus, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And of course, we read and heard the response of Jesus that he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews were astonished by that statement. And, 
And they would answer Jesus by saying, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Now, the temple there in Jerusalem at this time was a magnificent structure. It's one of the wonders of the world as far as, as buildings. And it was, as we discussed, before the birth of Jesus, Herod the Great, who was the ruler in Judea, he was called the Great because he was such a great builder. He was an awful man. But he began a remodeling and expansion uh, project uh, concerning the temple and the second temple that was built by Zerubbabel that we studied on Wednesday night, going through the book of Ezra just recently, that he came back uh, after the captivity, Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. They led a group of people to Jerusalem. They built the altar and they built the temple. And that was 500 years before this time here. So Herod comes along, and he wants to expand the temple, which he does. And uh, he expands the Temple Mount, made courtyards where thousands of people can come uh, during the time of the feast. And he used, according to Josephus, the Jewish historians, thousands of workers that would be a part of that expanding and remodeling project. And that project would continue for 30 years after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, till 63 AD, when those workers were dismissed, and that was only seven years before the temple would be destroyed, when Titus and the Roman army would come into Jerusalem, and they broke through the city walls of Jerusalem, and they would come in and they would destroy the temple literally to where not one stone was upon another. So Jesus here talking about destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And, and he wasn't talking about the temple there, the building in Jerusalem. You see, as we go and continue through John's gospel, just as we saw last week, we're going to see this week, and we will continue to see this, that as Jesus is speaking to the people, that they will misunderstand spiritual truth and interpret it in the physical, material way. Now, Jesus is going to rise from the grave bodily, physically, but he's saying, destroy this temple. And I imagine that perhaps he's pointing to himself. Destroy this temple, and I'm going to raise it up in three days. You want a sign of why I do these things and the authority in which I do them? And they will continue to keep asking him that. It's in the synoptic gospels that it's recorded that they wanted to see a sign, something spectacular. Show us a sign. When Jesus had been healing every kind of sickness and disease and freeing the demoniacs, and he said, no sign's going to be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? then you're going to have the sign of the resurrection. Destroy this temple. You want to know what's, you know, authority, what signs I, uh, I do this and show you? It's going to be the resurrection. I'm going to be put to death and I'm going to rise from the grave. And so here is Jesus. He's in Jerusalem during the feast of Passover doing these signs and addressing the people and the religious leaders. And there in the crowd was the man that was watching all this going on. And I believe that this man, which we are introduced to in John chapter 3, his name being Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee, that his heart is being pierced by the very things that Jesus did and said. 
And Nicodemus, who is called the master teacher of Israel, verse 10 of the chapter tells us, comes to Jesus at night. And Jesus has a very essential and very important message for him and also for the religious leaders. Because notice that it is in verse 2 that Nicodemus said, we know that you are a teacher, not just me. But we know that you are. That is me and the other religious leaders. Uh, we're, we know that, that there's something special about you. And so early in Jesus' ministry, they're trying to figure out who Jesus is and why he's doing these things. We know that you are a teacher that comes from God. This is coming from the master teacher of Israel. Now we know that in Israel at this time, at the time of Jesus, and as you read the Gospels, there's different sects and different groups of the religious leaders. Now here is Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee. We read about the Pharisees quite extensively as you go through all four Gospels. And the Pharisees were a brotherhood of those who were dedicated to keeping the most minute regulations and details of the Old Testament law. Now, they would come about after the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, that book ends about 400 years uh, before Jesus comes on the scene. And you recall it, at the end of the book of Nehemiah, as we saw last Wednesday, that there was paganism that had come into the land once again. Nehemiah had been gone as he had gone back to the king uh, of Persia to serve as the cupbearer. He comes back to Jerusalem, and, and there they were uh, selling uh, in the marketplace uh, there in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, so they weren't keeping the Sabbath. Uh, there was the uh, mixed multitude that was in the assembly of God bringing paganism in. Uh, they were ones that had the priests and the Levites. Instead of doing the work of the Lord, Nehemiah says, Why have you forsaken the work of the Lord at the house of the Lord? They were out working in the fields and not being provided for. So what happened after that time is Nehemiah made those corrections and, and once again bring in reforms and revival back to the land that there was a group of men that would come together particularly about 200 years before Jesus came on the scene and said that we don't want that paganism influencing us because it got us really into deep trouble. It's what led us to go into captivity because of our idol worship and disobedience to the Lord. And also, uh, it almost got us in trouble uh, right after the captivity. And so we're going to have a group of men that are going to be the dedicated ones, the separated ones, and that's what the word Pharisee means. And they would be ones that they would commit themselves, and at the time of Jesus, it is believed that they numbered 6,000, completely dedicated to carrying out the regulations and applications of what was prescribed um, and interpreted by the scribes. Now, the Pharisees initially had great loyalty towards the, the law, but over time, what happened was that at this time, they had made the law of God of no effect, as Jesus said. Outwardly, they were all polished. They were all religious. They were known for their fasting. Um, they would go to the marketplace and fast, and people would look at them and say, look at those religious Pharisees. You know, he's fasting. Uh, they're fasting. They look all gaunt. And Jesus would say that when you fast, you do it in private. Your father sees you. They would say long prayers on the street corners. They would blow the trumpet when they gave. They gave even of their, you know, herbs and spices out there in their little gardens. And Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, you're all polished, but inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones. 
So here is the Pharisees that they were more interested in their traditions and they became a great burden on the people. And the reason was is because they had tremendous power in Israel over the Jews. So that was the Pharisees. Now I mentioned the scribes. The scribes were, as we read in the Gospels, were the ones who were well-educated, who interpreted and taught the law. They were also, it might be referred to in your translations, to as lawyers. And not only did they teach the law, but they were the ones that they took the law of God, they interpreted the law, they made the Ten Commandments into 613 commandments, we know. And so the Pharisees came along and said, whatever the scribes, you know, interpret the law in the great detail, we're going to be dedicated to keeping the details of the law. But also, the scribes were the ones that persecuted those who broke the law. That's what Saul was doing when in the book of Acts chapter 9, he was on his way to Damascus to, to persecute the Christians. Now, you might be thinking, well, Paul was a Pharisee. I thought he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee. He was. And here's the thing, evidence suggests that a great deal of the scribes were Pharisees. And that's why you see that close association in the Gospels, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, the scribes and the Pharisees, associated closely together because most scribes were Pharisees, but most Pharisees were not scribes, all right? Sadducees, we read about them. Again, they came along with the Pharisees and the scribes, to come against Jesus in the Gospels. And the Sadducees were another group of religious leaders that were less numerous than the Pharisees, but they were men usually of great wealth, and they were in places of political authority. And they would include the high-ranking priests, and they also would be very cooperative with Rome. They were very liberal in their theology. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the coming Messiah. Then you read about the council or the Sanhedrin council. And that was a group of men that were made up of 75 of them, of Pharisees and Sadducees that were also known as the Jewish Supreme Court. So they were the, the religious authority of the land. They were also called in the scripture the chief priests and the scribes. So when you read that term, the chief priests and the scribe, remember that Jesus said to his disciples that I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. What he's saying is, is that I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to stand before the Sanhedrin council. And that's what Jesus does, as we will see at the end of the book of John when he's on trial. He would stand before the Sanhedrin council uh, that men made up of Pharisees and the Sadducees and presiding over the Sanhedrin council was the high priest and they would condemn him to death. So here are the religious leaders of the land and here is Nicodemus. He was one that was a Pharisee. In fact, he was a ruler of the Jews. When you see that term, it means he was a member of the, that Sanhedrin council, the Jewish Supreme Court. He was a very religious man. He was a very educated man. He was the master teacher of Israel, as we take note again in verse 10 of the chapter. That's what Jesus is saying concerning Nicodemus. Also, he is believed by scholars to be well-educated in other areas because Nicodemus is interesting as a Greek name. He's very influential. He is one that is probably the best that man has to offer. 
He is very religious. He's very, you know, prestigious in his position. He is very influential. He's very powerful. He is one that is very intelligent. And he comes to Jesus. And he's being touched by Jesus as he watched Jesus. And he comes to him by night. Now, some have suggested that he comes to Jesus by night because he didn't want to be seen coming to Jesus during the day in public. He was afraid of, you know, the other religious leaders, and, and he didn't want to be seen talking to this preacher from Nazareth who comes into Jerusalem during the feast with no credentials. He's not a part of the religious establishment, and he comes in for Passover, causing all kinds of controversy, turning over the tables of the temple, and there are those who suggest that Nicodemus, because of that, he doesn't want to be seen in Jesus' company. So he cowardly, if you would, snuck away in the night to meet with the Lord. And that may be true to a certain extent at this time. But I think it also could have been that Nicodemus was finding an opportune time to meet with the Lord privately and quietly. You see, Nicodemus would be very busy during the Passover, during this particular time. He would be one that would be teaching the people constantly, and he would be very, very busy during the day, as would Jesus would. So on this night here in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus so he can meet with him face to face, but it was more than just that. He wants to speak with Jesus heart to heart, and that's what he does. And that's what the Lord desires for you and for me. For us to come to him and to meet with him and to open our hearts to him and be soft towards him, to share our hearts, to speak with him heart to heart. And as we're going to see that this most interesting conversation takes place that's recorded for us in God's word that is very important for us to know. We know that you're a teacher that come from God. That's what Nicodemus says. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The religious leaders, as I said, are beginning to wonder who Jesus is. And Jesus answers Nicodemus very directly in verse 3 by saying, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you must be born again, or you're never going to see the kingdom. And that word must means to pay careful attention to. You, Nicodemus, personally cannot enter the kingdom of God apart from being born again. And this must have absolutely floored Nicodemus. Just hit him like a, a ton of bricks. It certainly stirred his heart because Nicodemus, who was one who had dedicated his whole life to keeping of the law and to, to teaching of the law, he was a Pharisee, I'm a separated one. I'm one that is going to keep the most minute details of the law, and I'm going to teach it as well as the master teacher of Israel. And Nicodemus, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. You're not going to see who I am, the Savior of the world, unless you are born again. And Nicodemus in verse 4, he, he's asking Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb a, a second time? Can, can he be born again in that way? How can this be? How can this happen? And I don't think that, that Nicodemus is, is saying this skeptically. I, I don't think that Nicodemus is saying, what do you mean a guy's got to be born again? How can that happen? How can that be? 
Can he enter his mother's womb a second time? Come on. He doesn't have that mindset. I think that Nicodemus, very ex excitingly, he's wondering, how can this be? It's like Nicodemus is saying, help me. Help me to understand. Because I believe Nicodemus knew something about himself. Others no doubt looked at him as being successful and religious and spiritual. He was esteemed by the people, but in his heart he knew that he had failures and he had weaknesses. He knew in his heart that, that I'm a sinner. All of my life I tried to keep the most minute detail of the law, and I have failed to do so, that I am a sinner. All of my life I dedicated to keeping, uh, teaching the law and, and to being religious. And he knew the law in detail, but he knew that he had fallen short of the glory of God. He knew, as Paul would write in the book of Galatians, that the law does not declare you righteous, that it declares you guilty. And Nicodemus knew the scriptures, that if you break the law, it brings a curse and he knew that he had fallen short of God's standard. The law doesn't make me righteous. It declares that I am guilty. So he's wondering, he's wrestling. You know, we can have prestige. You can have an important position in life. You can have great popularity or wealth. You can be looked up at and by the world or by others. But every single one of us, we fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us are sinners. And we know that the scripture says that God shows personal favoritism to no one. So we're all sinners without exception, no matter what the outward appearance might be, whatever position you might have, whatever wealth may be given to you. Paul would declare, after he was saved, that I'm the least of the saints. Later on, he would say that I'm a sinner. And right before he died, he would say that I'm the chiefest of sinners. And you see, it wasn't that, that Paul had some deep, dark, secret sin that was a part of his life that nobody knew about, but it's simply that as he got closer to the Lord and as he journeyed through life, he realized that he would come up so short in comparison of the glory and the perfection and the purity of our Lord. And so too, the closer that you and I get to the Lord, the light of the world, that light exposes our hearts. It exposes the, the deep thoughts of the heart that we fall short. You guys, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I imagine that the disciples hearing Jesus say that on the hillside in Galilee, that their eyes got wide thinking, who can be more righteous than them? If you hate somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder. If you lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. See, it's a heart issue. And as we get closer to the Lord, we realize how far short we do come of that perfection and the righteousness that is demanded if we want to try to be righteous before God. And so here, as the scripture says, that we fall short, our righteousness are as filthy rags, that we need God's grace in our lives. Now, Nicodemus he knew that he was a sinner. And he's saying, how can this be? How can I get a fresh start and see the kingdom? Nicodemus came at night and he needed to see the light. And Jesus answered him, most so surely I say to you, 
unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you must be born in of the water and spirit. Now we know what it is to be born of the spirit, what it is that he's referring to, but what is it that he's referring to being born of the water? Well, commentators have different views and suggestions what exactly Jesus is talking about. Some say that perhaps he's referring to John's baptism. For John was still baptizing at this time early in Jesus' ministry. And you recall, as we discuss in chapter 1, that John's baptism was not a baptism for salvation, but rather it was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of preparation. John was calling people to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's going to baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. So John was calling people to admit that they were sinners and to be baptized in preparation of the Lamb of God who was to come. The King is coming. I'm that voice in the wilderness saying, uh, Behold, the Lamb of God, the coming of the Lord. You need to repent. So perhaps it's the water baptism of preparation, admitting that you're a sinner and you need salvation. There are those who say that the water refers to here to the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 that having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So Peter writing in that first chapter that we've been begotten into this living hope, a living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we have begotten into this living hope through the word of truth. Jesus said in John chapter 15, you are now clean through the word which I've spoken to you. So some say that it's being born, again, not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible. That is the word of God. Nicodemus, you've got to be born again as you hear and heed the word. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Or perhaps Jesus is just talking about physical birth. And that seems to be the indication here as you keep everything in context. As the unborn child is in the water sack being protected and then there is the child coming forth and the water bursting the child is born perhaps jesus is just saying you got to be born physically and spiritually and that's the indication because that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit now you might be thinking which one is it pastor jeff well i think all three are true not that water baptism is going to save you there's nothing in the scripture that indicates that and says that water will bring salvation. When we have a baptism next month, it is that individual who's coming out and making that public declaration that I am saved and I'm identifying with Christ. So baptism is important in the life of a believer, but it does not bring salvation. But as we talk about John's baptism, we do know that we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. It's not of works. Lest anyone should boast, it's a gift of God, salvation is. But you've got to come to that place where you're admitting that you are a sinner in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why it's such a tragedy that we see today that more and more ministry leaders and pastors behind the pulpit are adopting the mindset that we don't want to talk about sin, we don't want to point out sin, we don't even want to say the word sin. And so you'll hear things like, do you want to connect to Jesus? I mean, what does that mean, connect to Jesus? You know, 
Are you going to surrender your life to Jesus Christ? And the thing is, you realize that you need the Savior of the world and to call upon Him because you and I are sinners and He died for our sins. That is part of the gospel message. So it is true that we need to realize that we're a sinner in need of the Savior. And because we are sinners, we're separated from God. Secondly, you've got to take heed to the Word of God. That is not your own thoughts and opinions on God and salvation. And all of us, we know people that have all kinds of opinions, all kinds of thoughts on God and salvation, and God just loves everybody, and if you're a good person or you're sincere, then you'll go to heaven. Or if you belong to a church or if you went through, you know, infant baptism or you were confirmed in the church or you gave to the church or you belong to the church then you're going to go to heaven and there's all kinds of people with that kind of mindset and opinion on salvation rather than what the scripture has to say that god he is the one that is the creator of life and he is also the author of eternal life so we need to know what god has to say about salvation just as Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, that you must be born again. And thirdly, you've got to be born physically, obviously, just as we've all been born physically. You know, there's a saying that if you're born twice, you're only going to die once. That is, if you're born physically and then you're born again spiritually, you're only going to die once, that is, physically. And not even that if we're raptured, which I pray happens but we're going to be with the Lord for eternity. Now, if you're only born once, that is physically, you're going to die twice. Physically and spiritually. You're going to be separated from the Lord because of your rejection of Jesus Christ. Nicodemus, you're going, you must be born again. And I imagine Nicodemus is wrestling and he's wondering, what does this mean? And verse 8, and the wind blows where it wishes and you can hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? I think that perhaps that Jesus and Nicodemus are sitting out on the rooftops. That's what they did 2,000 years ago. They didn't have air conditioning. And so the people would sit out on the rooftops in the cool of the evening and, and um, sit out there and, and be able to have dinner and the rooftops are flat. Even when we go to Israel today, we see that a lot of the buildings are flat rooftops and the people go up there. A lot of people don't have air conditioning in Israel. So that's where they spend their evenings. That's where Peter was on the rooftop when he saw that vision of that sheet there in the book of Acts chapter 10. So I imagine they're up on that rooftop. Nicodemus comes to him. And I just wonder if Jesus says that the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it if there wasn't this breeze that all of a sudden is coming through. Nicodemus is like the wind. You can't understand it. You can't exactly predict it where it goes. You can't see it, but you know it's available and it's real. It's like electricity. I don't understand it. I don't know exactly how it gets here from the power plant to the power grids to, you know, our building and, and um, you, you know, to, to up in my office. You know, you got the, the boxes, electric boxes that are out here. You got the transfer stations, but I know it's there. 
I know it's available. I take advantage of it. It's also like a huge airplane. You ever watch that airplane, especially if you're traveling overseas, you see this big, huge 747 out there, and they're loading it up full of stuff, and all the people that get on, it amazes me something that huge can actually get up in the air. But there's uh, aerodynamics and physics and the power of the engines and all that that I don't understand that allows that airplane to fly, and I take advantage of it. I use it. And so how it is here, Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, uh, the wind, it blows where it wishes, and you can hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from, where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. And then as Nicodemus is wrestling with this, how can it be? Uh, Jesus will say, as he does in verse 10 again, are you the master teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, what's the matter with you? Kind of flicking him on the head. Think, you know. Think about this. You're the master teacher of Israel, aren't you? You should know this. So Jesus isn't kind of getting a dig in here. He isn't mocking Nicodemus. He's helping them along. Nicodemus, think. I think Jesus is saying, think. Think about this, Nicodemus. You know the story of Ezekiel chapter 37. That there are all these bones that, that are there and and can these bones be made to live? And the prophet says, you know, Lord, and the bones come together bone upon bone, and then pretty soon the, the muscles and the flesh, and, and then they're just corpse and they stand up. Can these be made to live? Ezekiel says, you know, Lord, and the wind blows and begins to put life into those, those bodies, and it's a mighty army. Speaking about how the God's people, the nation at one time is dead, and all of a sudden it comes alive as that when the, the breath of life comes into them. Nicodemus, think about this. Because, you see, we are all spiritually dead apart from Jesus Christ, is what Ephesians 2 tells us, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But God has made us alive. He's the one that's breathed life into us. So he's helping Nicodemus to think about these things. And then in verse 11, most assuredly, as Jesus continues speaking to him, I say to you, we speak that we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. We're teaching and testifying, and you have not been understanding or receiving. If I have told you earthly things and you do believe not, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Oh, Nicodemus, you haven't been understanding because you haven't been listening. That is, your spiritual ears and heart open up to what we've been telling you. Notice that we, we've been telling you. The testimony of and witness of the Father sending the Son. The testimony and witness of the Holy Spirit. Even John, the Baptist, in preparation. We've been speaking of that which we know. You see, Jesus isn't just another religious leader that came on the scene. He isn't just a spiritual guru or teacher. Sometimes people say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I, I believe in the, the Sermon on the Mount. I try to live by that. Well, who is Jesus? Oh, he's a great spiritual leader, you know, great philosopher, whatever it might be who came along and, and, and says, you know, how heaven can be found. No, Jesus said, I came from there. I came from heaven. And he came to teach us how we can enter the kingdom of heaven. And that is, you must be born again. George Whitfield, who was used mightily in the days of, 
our, the early days of our nation, and particularly in the days of Benjamin Franklin. There's a letter that he wrote to Benjamin Franklin. But George Whitfield was asked, why do you always preach that a man must be born again? And he answered, because a man must be born again. He must be born again. We're not talking about becoming good boys and girls or a good person. We're not talking about how to become, you know, a better person, how to become a religious person. We're talking about regeneration and relationship with the true and living God through Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God birthing something new in your life. You must be. Not that it's a good idea. Or perhaps but you must be born again. Coming in faith, realizing that you are a sinner in need of the Savior Jesus and what Jesus did for you, as verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up, Jesus says. The second must of the chapter there's three must in this chapter. The next one we'll see next week. But you must be born again. And Jesus says, I must be lifted up as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness. He's making a reference to Numbers chapter 21. You know the story, a lot of you, that the people were being bitten by poisonous snakes. They were being bitten because they were complaining about God's provision, the manna that came from heaven, the, the, the bread that came from heaven. And so they began to, to complain as they were tired of the manna. And as they were complaining uh, about God's provision, all of a sudden these snakes came in, these serpents, into the camp and began to bite the people, and the people were dying. So Moses began to seek the Lord, and he was instructed by the Lord to take a brass snake, put it on a brass pole, put it in the middle of the camp, and anyone who was to look upon that snake on that brass pole would be healed. He shall not die, but shall live. And as we look in faith upon Jesus on that pole, the cross, brass in Scripture speaks of judgment. And as He was on that cross, He took the judgment that was meant for you and for me as He died for our sins and all of our sins were placed upon Him. And in faith you believe in Him. And as we do, you too shall not die, but shall live. That verse 15 Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That word believe means to trust in, to look on, to put all your weight on, to lean on. You will not die, but live. Because all of us have been bitten by the snake of sin. And we need to come to the cross and believe in him, the Son of God, who died for our sins and then cried out, it is finished. I paid the price, I've done the work. I've died for your sins and then was put into a grave and he rose again, validating what he did on the cross. He conquered sin and death. That as we look to him and believe in him and trust in him and surrender our hearts to him, you are born again by the Spirit of God. And that's the good news because we have been bitten by the snake of sin. Jesus said, I must be lifted up, Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness. And I will go to the cross, Nicodemus, and pay the price for you and for all of us that we might have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. As we believe in him, look upon him, 
And as we believe in him and cry out to him, being born again by the Spirit of God. Father, we thank you for a message that perhaps we know, but Lord, again, I, I pray that not only for ourselves that we realize that this is a must, not an option. It's not a good idea, but if we want to see the kingdom of God, we must be born again. And I pray, first of all, that if anyone is here this morning, that maybe you've gone to church, you've heard Bible study, you belong to a church, but are you born again? Here is a religious man, an influential man, well-respected. Here is a man that was a master teacher of Israel. He knew the Bible inside and out, but yet Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. That is a life surrendered to Jesus. You understand that you've fallen short of the glory of God, that you've missed the mark, that the law of God has declared you guilty and brings that curse that the scripture talks about. But the good news is this, that Jesus took the curse and became a curse upon himself. He, he became that curse, the one who knew no sin became sin for you and for me as he died in place of you and for you, personally, individually. The Son of God who came from heaven and went to the cross because of his love for you. Have you cried out and come in faith and believed on his name? Have you come to him and asked for forgiveness and surrendered your life to him? You must be born again. You must come and cry out to him that whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ confessing with your mouth and that you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, the scripture says. And if that means anything to anyone here or out there in the coffee shop, that this morning, if you were to die, if you were to honestly say, I've only been born once, that is physically, I don't know if I've been born again, give your heart to Jesus right now. We're going to give you that opportunity right now to make that decision, the most important decision that you will ever make in your life with eternal implications. Don't miss this opportunity. Don't harden your heart. And you pray, Jesus, I hear what your word declares. And I've had my opinions and I've had my thoughts and what I've been taught even perhaps in the church I went to, but I understand what your word declares, that I must be born again. I realize and I know that I am a sinner, and I confess that to you. And now I now come, and I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior, because I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you're the Son of God who came from heaven and died for me personally. And you were put into a grave and you rose again because you're knocking on the door of my heart. And I let you in. I surrender my life to you now. Coming in faith, trusting in you. Surrendering my life to you fully. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. If anybody by chance in this room, if you prayed that prayer, will you just put your hand up and put it back down? I want to pray for you and bless you. If you're out in the coffee shop, you can do that. We're not going to prolong this, but we give people an opportunity to come to Jesus. Anybody at all? Okay.